Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. For months, the rumor was that Mike Pompeo would replace Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State. Now it's a reality. We'll discuss the future of U.S. diplomacy. Explosive growth in Dakota's oil shale fields could make the U.S. the world's top oil producer this year. We'll find out about missing people and impunity in the man camps in the Dakotas. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Rex Tillerson may go down in history as the Secretary of State that called the president a moron and got away with it for a while. Who can forget this bit of verbiage? I'm not going to deal with that kind of petty stuff. I mean, this is a town that seems to relish uh, gossip, rumor, innuendo. I call the president Mr. President. Or Rex Tillerson may go down in history as the Secretary of State, whose major accomplishment was the resignation of 60 percent of the State Department's top-ranking career diplomats. New applicants at the State Department are down by half. Let's talk about U.S. diplomacy with Stephen Wald, professor of international relations at Harvard. He's been writing about diplomacy in his column at Foreign Policy. Thanks for joining us, Stephen Wald. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, did you ever get what Rex Tillerson was really after at the State Department? There seems to be some kind of eternal frustration with the foreign policy blob in Washington that goes beyond just the Republican Party. And his response was, uh, nuke the State Department. Um, Did you ever get that? Uh, No, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what he was trying to accomplish. I mean, obviously, the blob in Washington is much broader than the State Department. Uh, And uh, lots of people who have looked carefully at how we do diplomacy understood that the State Department needed some reform, needed to be upgraded in certain respects. But the reorganization he announced was never clear. He never explained exactly what he thought the role of diplomacy in handling America's relations with the outside world were. Uh, And it turns out he wasn't either good at sort of selling what he was doing outside or inside the building, but he, uh, in the end, wasn't good at selling it to the president either. Now, we've got uh, Mike Pompeo coming in as Secretary of State. He's somebody who was an Iran hawk. He wants to roll back the nuclear deal with Iran. He's a hawk on North Korea. He's closely uh, maligned with Coke Industries. He's a climate denier. He uh, is also uh, said some harsh things about Muslim leaders in this country. As a congressman, after the Boston Marathon bombings, here's Mike Pompeo. The silence of Muslim leaders has been deafening. When the most devastating terrorist attacks on America in the last 20 years come overwhelmingly from people of a single faith and are performed in the name of that faith, a special obligation falls on those that are the leaders of that faith. Silence has made these Islamic leaders across America potentially complicit in these acts and in those that may well follow. 
the idea with Mike Pompeo, it seems, by President Trump is getting someone more in line with his own thinking. Is that um, it, did we lose some kind of impediment to to President Trump's uh, wildest um, impulses? Well, I think that's the the real concern here. And uh, President Trump has said that he wanted someone who was sort of more on the same page with him and that he and Pompeo uh, see eye to eye. Now, one thing that may be a consolation is that, you know, when you're a congressman, you can say a lot of irresponsible things and posture. And once you're in position of, of real authority, you have to be a little bit more careful. And we might hope that some of the more extreme positions Pompeo has taken uh, previously are not going to be his, uh, his preferences once he's secretary of state. But I think both inside Washington and, more importantly, uh, outside the United States, his appointment is going to be uh, viewed with some concern at a minimum and maybe uh, alarm, at least in some circles. Uh, you know, the United States does not seem to want to do diplomacy like uh, other countries. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the United States is um, so impulsive and military-oriented, and it, it seems to want a, a more complete result? Uh, I think it has a lot of, of roots. It's partly the fact that we are so powerful and we are still so secure here in the Western Hemisphere that we have never... Uh, had to do the kind of deals uh, that other countries had. We've never learned that that diplomacy is the art of mutual adjustment, you know, getting uh, 80% of what you want uh, by allowing your uh, interlocutor to get 20% of what what they want. That somehow just doesn't sit well with us. We we like the idea of unconditional surrender. We like the idea of dictating to others. Uh, And because we have a very large and powerful military, it's easy for presidents to think problems can be solved just by blowing something up. So I think, you know, what Tillerson faced is not uh, was not unique to him. It was a White House that didn't put much stock in diplomacy, that preferred to give sensitive missions to people like the president's son-in-law. Uh, and even uh, the president's daughter, uh, and who once said to a reporter that, you know, he, the president, was the only one that mattered. It didn't matter if you had a fully staffed State Department or not. And I think, unfortunately, we've seen in the first year of Trump's presidency uh, mostly chaos, uh, a world that is now confused for what the United States is trying to do, uh, and one that can't really point to any real foreign policy successes of yet. You are a professor of international relations at Harvard, and you've been writing about international relations at foreign policy and uh, the uh, the idea that well, uh, why don't why aren't there better people uh, in in foreign policy? Why isn't international relations creating them? Uh, why why is that? I mean, why don't people trust uh, international relations experts and would rather go with their son-in-law or an oil executive or other uh, all sorts of other people? Uh, well, it, yeah, I think it has to do with the fact that most of these jobs are heavily political. We don't have a, a well-established you know system of professional diplomacy uh, that you might see in other uh, countries. Uh, we're the only country, for example, that reserves roughly thirty. 40% of ambassadorial appointments to political contributors, to people who've just given a lot of money 
to a campaign. And you might even argue that culturally we've never viewed diplomacy as a, a valuable skill. It's seen as more like uh, shady dealing or something like that. I think to some degree it's also that we don't train people uh, for the practical arts of diplomacy the way some other countries do. Um, and finally, presidents in the environment of Washington, and particularly in a partisan environment uh, like we have today, uh, put an enormous premium on loyalty. Uh, loyalty matters much more than skill, and you can see why Trump wants to rely upon his immediate family members, because they're really the only people he can trust. The same was true, by the way, for Barack Obama, who tended to rely very heavily on an inner circle, because once you got outside that inner circle, you could never be sure if the people uh, you were using were going to have your back or not. Is there a difference in the U.S. foreign policy after the Cold War? The Cold War, the Democrats and the Republicans um, were both on the same page, basically, about what to do in the Cold War. But now there's no Cold War and there is no consensus. And you mentioned this partisan situation. And they've got very different ideas about how to go about the world. And uh, the Iran deal is a clear example. I think the Iran deal is a place where you get uh, some disagreement, but I think this is a more complicated picture. Uh, certainly, people have been more willing to use foreign policy for partisan purposes. Uh, the sort of witch hunt over Benghazi, for example, the uh, incident that happened after the Libyan upheaval uh, is a case of that. But overall, since the end of the Cold War, I'd argue there's actually been a remarkable consensus where both Democrats and Republicans have embraced the idea of the United States as the indispensable nation. Uh, you'll remember that both Republicans and Democrats were strongly supportive of uh, President Bush's decision to invade Iraq, Hillary Clinton famously voting for it as well. So in a certain sense, there's been a considerable consensus about America's role in the world. What's interesting is that Trump as a candidate actually was the first person to really challenge that. And he got a lot of pushback from not only Democrats, but especially senior Republican foreign policy people. The challenge he's faced as president is he's had to use some of those people in running his uh, his government. And what we may be seeing now is Trump finally beginning to assemble a team that really reflects his worldview. Uh, I think it's a little bit too early to tell, but that's at least one uh, possible source of concern here, that we're finally going to uh, have uh, you know, an administration that lets Trump be Trump. You know, he said he wanted to get this team in place for the negotiations with North Korea. And Mike Pompeo is a lot harder on uh, North Korea. He's practically advocated regime change there. Uh, what do you expect to go down there? Uh, I think this is a perfect illustration of the problem of essentially amateur hour diplomacy here. The decision to accept Kim uh, Jong-un's uh, invitation to meet at a summit meeting uh, is, you know, an impulsive presidential decision. And what Trump did by saying yes to this invitation uh, was basically give Kim what he wants most, namely the opportunity to sit as an equal with the president of the world's most powerful country. Uh, you know, a remarkably visible event uh, if it actually does come off. And of course, Trump allowed him this or gave him this particular concession without getting anything really in return, nothing concrete, nothing tangible. This is not the way, uh, you know, we would do this if we were sort of operating in a more mature fashion. You would have everything lined up 
before our president would agree to meet with a North Korean president. Now, we'll see what happens, but the danger is if Trump goes to this meeting and doesn't get anything tangible, doesn't get uh, real concessions from the North Koreans, he'll look like he got played, and that uh, judgment will be correct. And what we do at that point is anybody's guess. Stephen Walt is professor of international relations at Harvard. He's been writing about diplomacy in his column at Foreign Policy. Thanks a lot for joining us. Nice talking with you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we are going to talk about where we get our oil from uh, man camps in the Dakotas. Stay tuned. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Loyola University is having their annual conference on climate change. It's coming up on Thursday, March 15th and 16th. And one of the sessions caught our eye. It's called Disappearances, Rapes of Indigenous Women at Oil, Fracking, and Man Camps. And it's taking place on Friday. And with us is one of the people who's going to be on the panel. Her name is Lissa Yellowbird Chase. She is the founder of Sanish Scouts. It is a citizen-led organization dedicated to finding justice for missing people and their families. Thanks for joining us, Lissa. Yeah, glad to be here. You know, I think nobody listening really goes to oil country and sees how this is extracted and really knows anything about these places that are man camps, called man camps. We know they employ lots of people and people go up there. What are they like? Well, what they're like today is a little bit different from what they were when the boom happened. But I'll tell you when the boom happened, it basically ended up being like a trailer court with literally in some situations just identical units just for rows and rows and rows. Mostly the established ones were put there by the oil companies. And then you had another set where people were just kind of establishing, you know, a place to survive basically on private land or man camps that were in progress of growing. So it was pretty disorganized in the beginning. The oil companies back in the beginning of the boom were literally hiring anyone that had, you know, blood pumping through their veins and a heartbeat. (laughs) Um, It was all about manpower back then. They didn't do very many uh, criminal backgrounds and, and different things like that. So when you would come into the man camps, it just looked like a newly erupted mini city. And uh, a lot of the men brought their families. And some of them were out in the middle of nowhere. People were hauling water in some of the camps. They were using porta potties. Even in the wintertime, it was basically 100% chaos. Well, I imagine a lot of these people on their time off, it became something of a crisis. How do you entertain all these people? And I imagine there was a lot of drinking and a lot of nuttiness. Oh, yeah, there was. I'm sure the alcohol sales went up. But also with the influx of people, a lot of them brought their side jobs, you would call it, which brought drugs, 
you know, other illegal substances. It was basically a free-for-all is what was going on. And don't get me wrong, there's been some good families, and they had to suffer through that as well, just being a, a literal transient worker. At the time of the Bakken oil boom, when that first started, you had people living out of their cars. Some of the churches had opened their doors to people just to give them a place to lay their head. There was people sleeping outside, people showering outside, you know, by taking pitchers of water and pouring it over their heads. It was crazy. Was there a sense of impunity in these camps? Because, you know, I imagine we're going to find out that people are disappeared, that women are getting raped. Um, How do you get to a spot where you've got that kind of impunity? Well, back in in the beginning, it was trial and error, 100% trial and error. Now, through the Santa Scouts, when people did start going missing, I had put a call out through social media for assistance in trying to locate some of these people. And through networking and establishing relationships with some of the oil field workers, I came to find that a lot of them, you know, the good ones, were also having the same stresses that the community was. Most of the people came up here because our economy was so shot at the time that people were showing up on Greyhounds with not a dime in their pocket. They had enough to get here and that was it. So some of the families I met, you know, they tried to set up shop and do what they could and try to make their little safe space. Some of them had children. There was just nothing they could do. Next thing you know, there's people partying next door. There's drinking, there's fighting, there's gunshots, there's all kinds of things going on, you know, rapes, murders, people disappearing. And I noticed that there was a point in time where it seemed like people's focus just became, you know, they put the blinders on and it became almost like a survival technique, even for some of the workers. So the only way that they were finding safe spaces to live in was truly by trial and error. I'm talking with Lissa Yellowbird Chase, and she is the founder of Sonish Scouts. It's a citizen-led organization that's looking for justice for missing people and their families. And we're talking about what was happening at some of the uh, man camps and the places where oil development was going on in uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, even in Canada. Can you tell us about some of the kind of cases you end up working on? My first case involved a young missing oil fill worker from the state of Washington is where he was raised. And he had, at that time, fallen in love with the girl of his dreams and moved to Texas to be with her. And because of the economy and lack of work, he was recruited to North Dakota to work in the oil trucking business. And so he came to Mandaree, North Dakota, which is a part of the Fort Berthold um, Mandan Hidatsa Rikara Nation where I'm enrolled. And he started working for an old friend of his from Washington. There was some differences. It ended up a murder for hire. The young boy goes missing and it was just business as usual. So (laughs) that was one of the things. I mean, you're talking a community a large community of 20,000 maybe in the whole area of that part of the reservation. And next thing you know, you've got 100,000 people running around and it's just complete chaos. What do you do, you know? Well, were there authorities Uh, who would look into this and figure out what was wrong and prosecuted people? 
Well, I can tell you, for one thing, I don't think our justice system was ready for this influx of people at that time. And that was obvious. Somebody who's gone missing, even now that the boom is gone, is not a priority for law enforcement. One of the common things I hear from officers in response to any missing person case is that it's not against the law to go missing. How do you know that they didn't leave on their own accord? They probably have some criminal thing hanging over their head, and that's why they're missing. It became a situation where it seemed like law enforcement was actually looking for excuses not to do their jobs. However, on a priority level, you have 100,000 trucks on an area with uh, bad roads to begin with, and then you have all this extra you know, transportation. And with the normal people that were living there beforehand, So you had accidents. People were dying left and right on the job, on the road. So it was basically a reactive type situation from law enforcement. There was no proactive anything going on. That's Lissa Yellowbird Chase. She'll be at the Climate Change Conference at Loyola University on Thursday and Friday. And we'll hear more from her after the break. We'll hear stories of women who were disappeared in the oil-producing regions of the Dakotas. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with Lissa Yellowbird Chase, and she is the founder of the Sonish Scouts. It's a citizen-led organization dedicated to finding justice for missing people and their families. And she's going to be participating on March 15th in the Loyola University Conference on Climate Change. The panel is Disappearances, Rape of Indigenous Women at Oil Fracking Man Camps, Do you have another story about a person who went missing that we should know about? Let me bring your attention to Edith Chavez. One of the things that I have said in some of my presentations before is that the statistics are showing that for the level of violence and murders here in the Bakken, North Dakota is kind of under statistical, you know. And so one of the things that I've always said is, Maybe our statistics are down because we haven't found the bodies yet. A lot of these people who were coming here came here under the radar. A lot of them are already off grid. A lot of them have addictions. A lot of them lived in the streets. A lot of them were not connected with family. And so when they migrated up here, how do we know that these people were missing? Edith Chavez, she was traveling across North Dakota And she had gotten into an argument with her boyfriend. She ended up trying to hitchhike back to South Dakota. She was abducted out of Castleton, North Dakota, which is just 13 miles from my house, and was taken out to the Bakken oil fields. She was drugged. She was beaten. She showed up in Williston, North Dakota. She escaped, and a farmer helped her get to safety. When she tried to make this report to the Williston Police Department, 
rather than pay attention to the fact that she was a victim, that she was injured, they actually ran a check on her, saw a old warrant from 2011 for an old moving violation, nothing serious, and actually jailed her and then transported her to Minot, North Dakota. They later found out that she indeed was hurt. She had a concussion and nothing was done about it. They victimized the victim. So when I had made this claim that with these people living under the radar and then flocking to North Dakota, how do we know who's missing? Because there was no way to keep track of them. So basically I say again, we probably just haven't found their bodies yet. So Edith Chavez, I have tried to reach out to her. She's got some severe PTSD from her ordeal. And so I never really got to interview her What about the cases of rape and rape of indigenous women? What kind of things were happening? Like I said, with a lot of the people that were coming into the Bakken oil fields, you know, we got guys that are working two weeks on, two weeks off, three weeks on, three weeks off. So it's push, 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 push. It's basically economic exploitation, occupational exploitation, if you will. So these people are trying to keep up with what the oil service people are demanding. So what do they do? There's meth flying all over. People are telling you, hey, you can stay up for days on this. Well, next thing you know, here comes the drugs. Here comes some of the cartels. Here comes some of the gangs. And with that comes the sex workers, prostitution, and then what services they probably couldn't cover. Then we got pedophiles and sex offenders running around raping and taking advantage of the women. And let's not forget our LGBTQ community. When you come into an area where this is kind of like a taboo to be any person that's involved with the LGBTQ community. So a lot of our gay community was assaulted too exploited, assaulted, you know, controlled and trafficked with the drug war that's going on in our community. Then you have a lot of young, vibrant males that are coming in and they got all this money and they're checking out these little girls that are in town. I mean, we had a a young lady in our community that was at a laundromat and a couple of oil fill workers tried to nab her out of the laundromat while she was doing her laundry. That safety net that we had, it diminished overnight. It was just crazy. It was just completely crazy. I'm talking with Lissa Yellowbird Chase. She is the founder of Sonish Scouts. It's a citizen-led organization that's looking for justice for missing people and their families. And we're talking about what was happening at some of the man camps and the places where oil development was going on in South Dakota, North Dakota, even in Canada. Are there still women who are missing today who you're looking for? Not in the area that I normally work. We pretty much have everybody accounted for in the North Dakota Bakken area. We have Olivia Lone Bear, who's missing out of Newtown, North Dakota. Whether that's oil fill related or not, I can't say. But I'll tell you that a lot of these kinds of things didn't happen before. Olivia went out to a party, went to meet some friends, had been texting a couple of her acquaintances and just fell off the map. Her and the truck she was driving, neither one of them have been recovered. Did things get any better? I mean, you give some indication that there's less of a boom now and things are better, and is it all right now? 
I would say not. So the boom's over and it kind of went into a plateau level, so to speak. The DAPL pipeline went in, so that eliminated a lot of the truck traffic now that they're exporting oil through the pipeline. So that took a lot of the transportation jobs out of the picture. But we still have people that are maintaining. We still have people that are fracking and digging for more oil. There's new oil pads coming up every day. With that being said, we still have people that are maintaining these oil pads and and all the other functions that go with the oil business. And there's still people that are coming in, being recruited for different positions. I think maybe now that total chaos has taken place on our homelands, that the demand by the community is that the oil companies take more responsibility for what's going on and the people that they're bringing into our homes. You know, and some laws have changed. We had uh, the Violence Against Women Act that went through. Um, We had some situations on my reservation where the locals found out real quickly that the tribal police had no authority over them. What do you think people should take away from this? This is kind of like the unseen world of where we get our oil and energy resources And people see the protests, people see a lot of law enforcement people there. You know, is this something where law enforcement can work or is this just such an exploitative scene that it just can't right itself? Well, (laughs) you know, they say everything rolls downhill. Um, And so with our commander in chief right now, he's all for exploitation. And that's obvious. He's delving into sacred sites. And, you know, with the whole DAPL, I was in Standing Rock for most of the encampment, July, August till the day before camp closed. You know, I wasn't able to stay for when they invaded the camp because I actually had my granddaughter with me. So we're talking multi-generational here. My grandma was there, all five generations, older females from my clan. I had to flee the camp, you know, because I had my granddaughter with me and she had been coming with me and then knowing that they were coming to evict us with force if necessary. I didn't want her harmed. I didn't want her to have any long lasting like PTSD, anything like that. I mean, with our commander in chief of our country who is authorizing these assaults on our mother, on our mother earth. I mean, it kind of leaves you in a conundrum. I mean, we can protest all we want, but when they do finally show up to take that territory, what are we going to have in place to keep our community safe, to keep what happened in the Bakken from happening elsewhere? Well, it seems like the authorities are more interested in holding people who protest accountable. I noticed that last fall, fall, uh, 80 congressional Republicans and four Democrats Uh, submitted a letter to Jeff Sessions, and they want him to look into prosecuting pipeline protesters under domestic terrorism statutes. Right, which brings me back to the initial problem. In my personal opinion, it seems like the government has spewed up these situations to distract everybody from the real issue here. And the real issue is, how are we going to keep our community safe? Whether that pipeline comes through here or not, What plan do we have in place? And it should be backed by the government. It should be backed by law enforcement to keep these man camps and the people who live in them from affecting the communities, the longstanding communities that have been there forever. What kind of penalties are we going to have? What kind of responsibilities do the oil companies need to have to do background checks? We shouldn't have 50% of the man camp workers 
who have multiple felonies recent at that. I don't try to hold people's backgrounds against them, not forever. But if you have pedophiles and rapists and aggravated people that are running around and these are your top-notch employees, then what are we going to do to hold the government and the oil companies responsible for bringing those kind of people into our communities? Lissa Yellowbird Chase is founder of the Sonish Scouts. It's a citizen-led organization dedicated to finding justice for missing people and their families. And she's going to be participating on March 15th in the Loyola University Conference on Climate Change. The panel is Disappearances, Rape of Indigenous Women at Oil Fracking Man Camps. Thanks a lot for joining us, Lissa Yellowbird Chase. Yes, thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll have global notes, our look at international music, and we'll chat with our music curator, Daniel Musisi, about a new record called Soul Power Sound. We're also going to hear about an exciting play adaptation from Iran that's playing at Silk Road Rising. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gal Lee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Mike Gilmore engineers and Daniel Musisi curated our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.